Thank you, Ann. And good morning. Good morning. It's, I started to say a pleasure, and I still think, Ellen, it is a pleasure. <laughs> but this morning, there were several of us that were wondering, and I'd had a conversation even with Marcia earlier in the week. She says, don't worry, he will be there. Well, today, I didn't see him. I didn't see him, and I didn't see him. But what had happened is, it turned out to be his time and Marcia's time for their refreshment in their Sunday school class. But he got here, and he got here on time, we're glad to have him. Uh, Alan, as you know, is a friend of our class. He led our retreat in the past, he, down at Banning Mills. He has taught us on numerous occasions. But he's also, of course, very active in church. He was he served as the president of the choir, uh, PPR chair, and many other functions. So without <coughs> keeping you in suspense any longer, welcome Alan. Good morning. It's wonderful to be with you all. Um, and I got the food delivered, and I'm still married, so that's a good thing. Uh, when you talk about the pra- prayers of Thanksgiving, I got a quick one. Both my sons uh, got out of graduate school this year. Uh, yes, and they both got jobs. My oldest son. Pardon me. Oh, praise God. Um, although they did, yeah, we told we paid for an undergrad, and, and we'd help them in graduate school. And then my oldest son decided he wanted to go to NYU. Oh. Which was only $120,000 for two years. It's education. But he got a job as an intelligence analyst. No, he's not Snowden. Um, but, uh, it's interesting because my father, as you remember, was in the CIA. And now my son is an intelligence analyst, not with the agency, because they're not hiring because of sequestration. And the other son is going to be, uh, he got his degree in counseling psychology and he's going to be starting work at Peachford, uh, as a therapist. Uh, Inpatient case manager, part time. Then he's got another job. You've got two jobs, actually, a full time job. As um, I don't even know exactly what it is. It's a new startup company, but they wanted somebody with his skill set in terms of working with uh, employees and customers. So, kind of like therapy for money. So, <laughs> although it's interesting because he has a very different style of, of, as a therapist than I would ever be. I call my son Clint, East, Clint Eastwood because he talks very quietly. And I think he's getting quieter and quieter. And, and I asked him one time, he came back from doing an internship at a facility here in the south part of town where all the uh, doctors and uh, airline pilots go to get sober. That's I know. It was frightening. Uh, and he came home. Yeah. <laughs> and he came and he came back. Uh, and I said, uh, how was the day? He goes, it's wonderful. He, he literally talks like this. And he says, uh, we had a mass relapse last night, so we got to kick butt in group therapy today. <laughs> and I said, Tommy, you don't kick butt in therapy. He goes, you do it your way and I'll do it mine. <laughs> so, he is going to be, he's going to be an incredible therapist, I think. Um, what I want to talk about today is, and really kind of, I'd, I'd like kind of a discussion on this because it's a, it's a, it's a topic that I think all of us think about at some point in our lives. And I recently finished reading a book, actually it was several months ago, called The Proof of Heaven. Has anybody read that book? Okay. Um, And I reread it again this week, and then I started looking, you know, then I went on the Internet, which is always dangerous, uh, because everything's always true on the Internet. Um, But there's there's not, there's some controversy, obviously, about this gentleman. And and uh, so I want to talk about his book and some of his experiences. He experienced a near-death experience, they call it NDE, and he's a neurosurgeon, very famous neurosurgeon, Harvard uh, went to Duke uh, Medical School and was on faculty at Harvard for years and years and years. Ended up in, in the Shenandoah Valley uh, and had a, uh, a near-death experience. So I want to go about, go through the book and, and some of the realities that he experienced. Because having been a therapist now for 
35 years, uh, 35 years, um, I worked with a lot of patients in my career who had, you know, what they claimed to be near-death experiences. The, the, the therapist in me, you know, thinking about brain function and neurochemistry and what's causing this and some research indicates that there's, there's similar uh, experiences in the brain even when we train our astronauts, for example, uh, and, and, but there's a great similarity of, of this experience across the, the world, actually. And his experience was pretty unique because he's a neurosurgeon. And he goes into some pretty good detail in his book arguing the medical reasons why his experience, uh, in his estimation, was, was an out-of-body experience. And I'm going to talk a little bit about consciousness as we go on, but I, I really want to talk to you all. I want you all to give me your, your thoughts as well. Obviously, we're in a room that we have a bias here. We, we believe in heaven. We don't need a lot of proof. But, I, I'll, but I'll admit to you that the, the, the therapist in me um, always is looking for what's the reason behind something. Is it neurochemical? You know, is it pathological in that, you know, is there illness involved? You know, is it hallucinations? Because obviously when you work with that population, very often the people that I have seen in my career have a very similar set of hallucinations, particularly the schizophrenic, with regard to a belief in, in Jesus and Jesus inhabiting them and them going to visit Jesus. It's a very common delusion that we see with schizophrenics. So you think, well, is this is this schizophrenia? Uh, is this person just having a chemical reaction based on medications? And he addresses that. Uh, or is this is this real? Is this an out-of-body experience? The first research to do any kind of really long-term work with this was Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. You remember her book, On Death and Dying? And she literally interviewed thousands and thousands of people across the world who had out-of-body experiences, uh, you know, just prior to death or post-death, you know, a post-death experience. Um, so let me talk about uh, Dr. Alexander, then I want to talk a little more generally about the concept as well. Um, his name is Eben Alexander. He's a neurosurgeon who went to UNC Chapel Hill. Um, we won't hold that against him. did his residency at Mass General. Um, and he wrote the book. Uh, it came out about a year ago, I think, maybe a little longer. And... He had, he, what his illness was, he had E. coli bacterial meningitis, which is very, very rare. Um, per his interviews, less than uh, 2% of the population lives once they have that diagnosis. And what happened to him is that they, they, there are certain medical tests they look at to determine what kind of brain function you have going on. And I'm not a, a neurosurgeon. Anybody here a neurosurgeon? You help me out here. Well, then you don't know what I'm going to say, so this could be easy. Um, they look at the serospinal fluid um, glucose level, which is uh, CFS, um, and they usually want 80, 80 milligrams per decimeter, all right, deciliter rather. So that doesn't mean a lot to you, but that's a normal, healthy human, human brain. If you're in imminent danger of death, we usually see folks with 20 um, megaliters per deciliter. Um, his was one. He had one. Um, he, you know, he had some a lot of experiences in his near-death experience that. I'm mean, reading his biography and look at the book. I'm thinking, are these past memories that he is accessing in his brain? Uh, particularly, and you read the book. You remember when he's although the, he gets to heaven. I'll talk more about this in a minute. And he's flying, and he was a very, very accomplished skydiver. So that I go right to okay. Then he is, you know, what he's doing is accessing an old memory of skydiving, essentially in a, in a drug-induced state, very much coming back uh, and thinking this was a near-death experience. But he goes on to explain all this. Um, one of the things I want you to think about as we're going through our discussions here is what is consciousness? What is consciousness? Is it just being conscious? Or is it uh, what some people define as understanding who you are in the context of everything around you? And is consciousness brain-based, in other words, physiological, or is it something different? Uh, there's some new interesting research coming out now about 
uh, the heart. In fact, they, they, they think, <clears throat> they think, they really know that there's what they call a neural net in the heart. Neurological cells in, in the heart. The heart has its own little brain. And it actually can trigger certain responses in our, in the brain up here in terms of emotions and feelings. And if you've ever had heartache, which all of us have, you know this is no great new news to you, but to scientists it was considered this was just not possible. Uh, so I think my bias as, as, a, as a Christian, but also as a therapist, I don't think we've begun to tap a really a, a complete understanding of the brain at all. Uh, it's such an incredible organ. Uh, but anyway, so I want you to think about that. What is consciousness as we go through this? Um, and I'll read some quotes that he had. He says, my experience showed me that the death of the body and the brain are not the end of consciousness. That human experience continues beyond the grave. And that's what separates us from animals. You know, uh, uh, we think, my, my dog doesn't lay there and go, God, I wish I was in Panama City. They, they just don't think like that. Now, my, my wife's, uh, where's the glasses? Where are they? Before I get in trouble there? Okay, now don't tell my wife I said this. Um, we, she has a cousin that's a, a veterinarian, kind of a dog whisperer type. She likes to do animal therapy and I just, just, um, I don't think animals feel like we do. It's pleasure pain. You know, if I get food or I have, you know, I get petted, which is nice. It does lower their blood pressure. But they don't think, they don't have a cognitive state like we have. That's what separates us from every other animal. You know, apes, whatever it might be, even on the evolutionary chain, if we're very close, we have a capacity to think about ourselves in context, whereas, whereas no other animal does. Um, Dr. Uh, Alexander was in, in severe convulsions when he got there. And some of the controversy about his situation is that he states in his book that the um, bacterial meningitis is what caused him to go into a coma. He was in a coma for seven days. Um, the ER doctor says she put him in the coma because a lot, of, a lot of times they'll do that to give the brain respite, uh, particularly when it's being attacked. But he was in a, in a, um, in a coma. But the interesting thing was that he hadn't uh, been verbal. Uh, he came, they came right from the home and he was in horrible convulsions, very, very ill. And he was nonverbal, just moaning, and, and they had to literally strap him down to the bed. And he screamed out three words, and then he went into the coma. He screamed out, God help me. And this is from a man who raised in the church, but did not go to church. Uh, raised Methodist, uh, but did not practice. So he goes into the coma. He's in the coma for seven days, all right? And while he's in the coma, obviously they're doing brain, brain studies. And he had no brain, higher brain function at all. He had brain stem function, which is the reptilian brain back down here, keeps your heart and lungs and things cranking. But he had no function at all in the neocortex, or uh, that's the, the outer part of the brain that you see when you're looking at a brain. And that's what ca- is responsible for our conscious thought, our ability to communicate, to have empathy, to have insight, uh, to have impulse control. In fact, the prefrontal cortex right here is responsible for that impulse control and insight. Um, and ladies, you know this probably already, but women's prefrontal cortex develops much faster than men. Um, I, I saw a video done by uh, the editor of... Um, the Academy of Pediatrics uh, Journal, I was on a committee with him in Washington, and he had a video showing the growth of the brain between a, a woman and man, and the women's is like this, and we're just sort of creeping up. <laughs> and this part doesn't develop for a while, which is why you see men always doing something stupid like, hey, honey, watch this, and we do something really dumb. <laughs> we have no impulse control, okay? Um, so anyway, he had no function in there at all, and he has gone back and looked at his tests and his scans and indicated that. Now, this is where we do all our thinking, okay? This is where our memory, it's not where your memories come from, okay? It comes from a different, from the limbic system. But this has to be working to make the memories vivid and to make them real and to make them powerful as opposed to just kind of a, a blurred kind of sense of consciousness. And he had no functioning at all uh, the whole time he was out, totally nonverbal. His first stage of his trip to heaven, as he called it, was what he called being in the, in the underworld. Um, he said it was like being in dirty jello. 
Uh, and essentially the, the way he described it more and more is almost like being in the ground looking at the roots of trees, but, um, and he heard a very rhythmic thumping, which was probably his, his heart. Uh, he even says that uh, a little later. He said it was like being, being buried, yet able to, to see a, a tangled matrix above him, thinking of the movie Matrix, that was, looked like roots of the trees. His second stage was, was when he began to evolve from that, and that's when the light comes in. That's the most common near-death experience we hear about is people saying, I, I, I see a very powerful light. Um, that has also been duplicated when uh, NASA astronauts go through, what is it, uh, when they're doing the gravity centrifuge, uh, yeah. They have, very often will have that same identical experience in the brain. Uh, they see the, the light, the puddle. So that's why a lot of physicians, you know, would say, well, you know, it's, this is physiological. And I probably would, would agree with that at some level, but I think he goes beyond that uh, when he talks about this. He talks about, he heard the, the and musicians, you'll love this part, there is music in heaven, um, which we knew that. Um, he said it was the richest, most complex, most complex, most beautiful music he had ever heard in his entire life. And then he had a pure white light that descended upon him, and he saw an opening of light, um, and then he began to accelerate um, uh, to that light. If you recall, I guess it was a year ago when I came, I talked about um, my aunt, who was the mystic in the Catholic Church. It's a very similar experience that she had, and uh, almost identical to what he talked about as well. And then he went into what he called the New World. Um, it was called, he called it the Core. And this is where he begins to get a little controversial in terms of how he tries to explain uh, his reactions and, and his experience in, in this, this new core, this dream world. He said it was like um, all of a sudden you had a, a chimpanzee became a human being. Then they had to go back and try to explain it to the fellow chimps in Chimp Talk what it was like to be us. Couldn't do it. And his, his difficulty is trying to articulate this in a way that people find it believable. Um, he, he's in the air, and he's flying, and there's a lot of, uh, above him is, is pitch blackness, and below him is an incredibly verdant world. Uh, where children are playing and people are verbal. There's no no verbal communication. Everything is telepathic. And he's flying above all of this, and he has uh, a, what he called an orb, or almost like a butterfly wing flying beside him. Remember that part? And it turns out, and I'm kind of jumping ahead of myself, he was adopted as, as a child, and he had never met his um, biological siblings until later on after after his uh, experiences. But his one of his biological siblings died. Uh, and he never knew that person, and this angel, as he called it, who escorted him throughout the, the heaven, was uh, his, his sister. And he didn't realize this until after he came back and was finally shown a picture of what she looked like and recognized her immediately as being the sister. Because his belief and it was that, uh, it was interesting, like, uh, because if you read Revelations and that sort of thing, it talks about knowing each other, and, and he talked about a little differently that he had no thought of his past life. He had no urge to go back because it was so wonderful there. Why would you possibly want to go back? But he didn't recall any feelings of missing anything until later on in his journey, and his actually his journey back into consciousness. Uh, but anyway, he was flying beside this orb, if you will, and um, she looked, uh, you know, looked him, looked at him in the eyes. He says, and it, the love that he felt from this person and from and talk about God in a second was beyond anything he could possibly experience in his life. Um, and, and the, the mantra that he kept hearing was that you have nothing to fear and there is nothing here you can do wrong. Now, wouldn't that be nice? There's nothing to fear and there's nothing here that you can do wrong. Sounds like an adolescent male. Um, <laughs> and they said, they, they said to him, we will show you things now that you will never believe before you go back. And he goes, go back where? Because he didn't have any, any, any desire to go back. Um, 
He saw what he considered to be angels, not as we would define them, but like giant flocks of angels. And he said their their cognitive skill sets and their brilliance uh, intellectually was so far advanced than us, uh, but they emanated from themselves an incredible sense of joy. That was the overriding feeling he had besides love in his journey, was an overriding incredible sense of joy. Um, and then he talks about God. He said God was a being, a being, uh, he called him Om, that channel, Om, that was just the word that came to his mind, because God was all-powerful. Yet, you know, and God, there was nothing between he and God at all. Uh, there was an incredible, yet they communicated uh, through, the, through the angels, uh, at least at this point, he said. But he could it still sense the infinite vastness of the creator, the infinite vastness. And um, he says that, that, that the quote that he was, the, the feeling he was given and the, what he was told is that love is the basis of everything in the universe. And his belief after his experience was that there were many universes, not just one. Many, many universes, that, but that God at the head of all of them. But there's an incredible sense of love that permeates through all the universes. He talks about evil. Uh, he says nothing can tear us from God ever, which is, we know that. But he talked about um, the fact that, that uh, he says, why do we have evil? You know, why, why is there evil? It's an interesting concept. Uh, he talked about evil as God allowing evil because with the presence of evil, you have freedom of will. You have the freedom of will to choose good or bad. And with the gift of free will, in his position, um, comes evil, because you can make the wrong decision. Where in heaven, you cannot make the wrong decision, which is kind of a nice thing to be able to do. The sole purpose on earth uh, is growing to the divine, is moving towards God. The growth is closely watched. He says all our spiritual growth is closely watched by God and the angels uh, all the time, and that, that determines our access to heaven. Uh, but it's, they're constantly with us in everything that we do every day. Um, when he came out of the core, he began to come back down now because he began to get a little better. He had a young son, a nine-year-old, I think he was at the time, and a, and a son in college who was also studying neurosurgeon, uh, neurosurgery. And um, he had no inclination about coming coming back at all, but he felt very clear that you know, at some point that he could feel the need to come back, and the need was because of his nine-year-old son. And as he became back into consciousness now, because what was happening at the time, his wife was meeting with the surgeon, the neurosurgeon in that hospital in Lynchburg, Virginia, and they were making the decision to pull the, the to stop the use of antibiotics because they were not being effective, meningitis was not going away, and that, you know, if he did survive, he would be in a consistent vegetative state that would not be something he would want. So she was in talking to the doctor who sent the nine-year-old into, into the hospital room to, to, to see his father. And they were talking about, you know, that he needed, they needed to make this decision. And she says, well, I, I, I agree. And all of a sudden, um, her sister, his sister rather, and the nine-year-old child came right out of the room and screaming, he's awake. And he, he had come back, uh, in, in a rather miraculous fashion. Now, like a lot of people, pardon me? Yes. That, that was his, um, uh, his adopted sister. Yes. Is that right? Yes. Not his, not his biological sister. Correct. Yeah. Um, because he met the, the biological family he didn't meet because he, he was trying to meet them, and there's some, and he became very, very depressed for I think it was seven or eight years, um, it, because his biological parents would not release information so he could connect with his siblings. And he went through a significant depression prior to this, this illness. In fact, it affected his practice. Uh, he was the um, the subject of a couple lawsuits for malpractice, uh, which is not all that unusual with physicians, particularly when it's especially. But he was having a difficult time in his life, clearly. Uh, and, you know, some people, the more cynical of the folks, will say, well, the depression, coupled with everything going on, with the medications, yada, yada, led to this, this need to reinvent himself, and that may be what he's doing now. 
Uh, but I want to talk a lot more about the medical part of this in just a second. But anyway, the soul promises to grow to the divine, which I think is obviously consistent with everything that we've, we've been taught. Now, with most near-death experiences, they have they usually look at these after cardiac arrest. Cardiac arrest, and the person comes back. And the science about that says, and, and they just, and if you, I don't know if you heard on the news this week, uh, I heard on CBS as well, I think it was on NPR, that, that they duplicated near-death experience with laboratory rats. Um, they gave them a cardiac arrest, and they, then they did a brain, and then they were uh, measuring brain activity, and it showed an incredible ac- uh, increase in brain activity post the cardiac event. The heart stops, the brain goes into a, what they think may be a, a survival mechanism that floods the, the brain with neurotransmitters, and the brain begins to experience incredible insights, awareness, visions, that sort of thing. Now, obviously, they don't know if the rats are having visions, because it's also, or think about the rat brain also, they don't have a whole lot of neocortex cranking up here, okay? That's why they're rats. Um, but we do see this very often in cardiac arrest patients. They come back and very often will do that. Uh, he, his heart never stopped. His, his body was functioning fine. He just had absolutely no brain activity at all except the reptilian, the, the, the very primitive brain. That's the only part of his. So he didn't, that doesn't work in science either. Because the definition of death does not, no longer is about the heart. The definition of death now is, is about the brain. That's swimming. Because you can be kept alive on a heart-lung machine for hours and hours and hours, or on an on a external heart. So your heart's gone, but you're still alive and conscious and everything else. So um, he talked about, you know, that that is his situation is, is a lot different than others. I'm going to pull out my, my Kindle here, because I want to talk about some of the medical things. This is what, And this is where Alan went to. I want to hear why. You tell me medically how this can happen. Um, there is also a, a moment at near death that... that is in the literature and has been for, gosh, I don't know, 100 years or so, called terminal lucidity. Terminal lucidity, where at the moment before death, people could become incredibly lucid. Whether they have Alzheimer's, brain tumor, whatever it might be, lost my dad, it'll be a year in, in uh, a month. And at the moment of his death, he had a, we had a moment of terminal lucidity. Um, he opened his eyes. He knew I was with him. Uh, sadly, my mom was running down the hall as he had this experience to get to the room. But he, I know that he knew I, that, that we were there. And because that was the first time he had opened his eyes in, in, in weeks. Uh, so, you know, his experience was different than this, though, because that's the difference in the physiology. That's of the brain, okay? All right. Now, he talks about people who are going to argue about, you know, uh, what is a distorted recall of memories? Uh, because it, your memories come from the limbic part of the brain, all right? And this fuels, people say, our, our emotional reception, our emotional perception of the world. However, in order for that to work, this part of the brain up here has to be functioning, the neocortex. His wasn't. It just had no brain activity at all. And the nice, the neat thing about his research is that he went back and looked at his own charts. And he sees the brain, lack of brain activity, and he talks to his doctors, and they say, no, there was no brain activity. And his neurosurgeon clearly has no answer for how he could have possibly come out of this. Uh, and so that was one of, his, one of his arguments as well. Now, could the medications have caused his hallucinations uh, and the memories? Um, yes. But, again, medications need to work with neurotransmitters. And neurotransmitters are located in, in, again, the neocortex part of the brain. His wasn't working, all right? So you can give all the drugs you want, but if you don't have the the neurotransmitters kicking, which is all these medications work with neurotransmitters, just like antidepressants and that sort of thing, if this isn't working, you're not going to have any kind of memory or any kind of visions or anything else. Um, Okay. All right. Now, I'm going to read some some of the things he talked about. One of the things he talked about, oddly enough, was uh, quantum physics. Anybody here a physics person? I'm not. So quantum physics talked about, you know, when they began to look at subatomic, subatomic, uh, you know what I'm saying, uh, particles, um, atomic particles, gee, they realized in the research that the smaller you got into the, into the particle, 
what began to realize the researcher was affecting the, the, the particle. You cannot do the research at a certain level, beyond a certain level, without you affecting the reality around you. The body affects the other, the subatomic. So he, he looked at that in the context of, of how does our brain, how does our life, our consciousness, our God, affect everything around us? There's nothing happening in the vacuum. That everything is happening through the consciousness of, of the brain. Um, okay, turn the page here. I'm going to pass my subatomic particles here. He was talking about consciousness here. Um, but when I left my physical body behind, I experienced these facts directly. In fact, I feel confident in saying that while I didn't even know the term at the time, while in the gateway or the core, as he called it, I was actually doing science, if you will. Uh, since science that relied on the truest and most sophisticated tool for scientific research that we possess, consciousness. And he think, well, a lot of scientists think about consciousness, they, they, they call them uh, reductionists, if you will. Um, they don't believe in consciousness outside of the physical body. Um, I think it is severely limiting who we are. Uh, obviously, as Christians, we believe in, in a life after death and resurrection through Jesus, and that's consciousness. Uh, if you think about when, when Christ, when Jesus came to earth, he brought God consciousness to us. And for the first time in our, in, in, in man's experience, we began to be able to see the, at least a little teeny glimpse of, of the incredible power of God's consciousness and how it permeates through everything we do. So consciousness, again, think about what it means to you. How would you define consciousness? I'm, and I want your, your input on this. How would you define it for yourself? What does consciousness mean to you? Awareness. The awareness of? Self. Everything about you. Okay. But what about you? Okay, what I think, what I feel, there what's you. happening around. And what's happening in relation. Yeah. Uh, and that's the emotional kind of connectivity. Uh, and that, I think that's other definitions. Yeah. Airline pilots, situational awareness. Say, say more about that. Well, where you are in the realm of space and time, so many times, particularly after accidents in airplanes, uh, there's a concern about the pilots aware of their situation at that moment. Which is, you know... one of the things that they're investigating all the time. Yeah, like with the, the, the tragic wreck this past week. Um, it's, it separates us again from animals, all right? Now, one of the things that, that I found interesting was trying to describe what heaven is like. Uh, because, you know... It, Revelation says a lot about it. It's probably the only place that I, I'm aware of, Malone, keep me straight, that, that, that you have the physical description of, of a city uh, that's roughly 1,400 miles across. Uh, but, you know, that that's a definition written maybe for a different time or different people. But his ex- description of it was just incredible vastness. Um, but overall, his overall sense of heaven was that, you know, what, what it felt like. Uh, the presence of God is ultimately what heaven is all about. Um, he said there was there was physicality to the body. Uh, but there was no need to, to communicate verbally because everything was under, automatically understood at a level that was, was very, very different than anything else. But think about heaven. How would you describe heaven? Now, he talked about flying orbs and angels and, and uh, wonderful, you know, verdant world. What in your mind is heaven? Now, I'm trained in therapeutic silence. I can outlast you, so. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> Pardon me? Feeling at peace. Love. Love. What else? God's presence. God's presence. Music. Music. <laughs> Amen to that. I think curiosity is what I think of it, of just what is it going to be? The curious part of the unknown. Yeah. Which he says that ends when you get there. The unknown ends. You know everything uh, at a level that's incredible. Who will I see? And that, and that, and that is, you know, that's a fascinating question to me. Who you see and what's, and then again, if it's, and, and, um, oh, where, where's my verse here? Um, 
I think this came first yeah, first Corinthians, because the eye has not seen nor the ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for him for those who love him. I think for me that kind of answers it a lot that we don't have we can't begin to understand the immensity of what this is like. Um, but I tell you, um, because I read this book <coughs> after my dad died, and then Marsh and I lost a nephew earlier in the year, and uh, was, that's when I was rereading it, and I tell you, it gave me a whole lot of peace. Um, because, you know, uh, you can argue science a lot, and science is pretty compelling stuff. So, I mean, that's how we make our, that's how we heal the body, is through science. But healing the heart is, is a very different thing, and I found the book to be very, very helpful in that regard. And the fact that he was able to apply some science to it. Uh, in terms of looking at his own situation uh, as a neurosurgeon. Now, do all neurosurgeons agree with him? No, uh, not at all. There's a lot of controversy about this, but I think that you would find that probably anywhere. Uh, but and, and I can't say you know that everything he says is 100 percent you know the truth. I don't I don't know that. But for me, it's been the most compelling. Um, I don't know, Beth. What you've read the book? What do you think? Well, I think because he didn't communicate anybody about his experience until he had written on it. In other words, he didn't talk to anybody that had had a nerve. He only used his own mind, and I think that's very significant. Yeah, because he, that, in fact, that was one of the counsels he got from, I think it was one of his docs, to his write, son, his son, his his son, son yes, yeah. to write it all down. Before you do, do anything, say anything, write it down. And you can imagine trying to write this down. How do you put it in words? How do you try, you know, we can't, how do you put God into words? Um, but the, the, the power of love was just, was just palpable. Uh, it really was. Yes. There are others that God, I remember an hour in gray, and that question thing the only universe happening that God put this just for, there were many and God. That's exactly what I said. Yeah, we, we can be a little egocentric at times. said that, because a very child in gray. That's certainly not how I was raised. Because it was, the universe was created for Catholics. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> that's very easy. Um, but I've got to watch my times. I have to seat the choir today. So, uh, um, the, yeah, no, it's always so much fun. Um, but I, I hope this maybe gives some thought for when you go home and talk to each other. But I, I, it's if you have a Kindle, it's an easy, cheap buy. Um, it, it's a bestseller, and uh, it's it's an interesting look. There's controversies like there isn't anything. It's people, I think, you know, particularly uh, atheists are. are are going to argue this. They're going to argue very much. Yes. You know the cardiologist, say, Mom. I know the name. Who you have? Oh, is he? Okay. Now, he's not any longer here. He's connected out of Gainesville, Hardy. Oh, okay. You know, he used to do most of the half St. Joe's. Oh, okay. Okay, that sounds, yeah, sounds familiar. It's very much it's it's uh it's interesting stuff. The you know, thing about atheists, uh, some research came out. I'm doing some work with an organization helping to figure out why people game the system or cheat. And uh, when you when you ask for an atheist, when they swear in the Bible, they don't cheat. Never that interesting. Quick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I know your time constraint. Back in the 70s, late 70s or 80s, we lived in Chattanooga. Oh, okay. There was a doctor there, Dr. Wallings. He was a cardiologist, mm-hmm. and he was kind of like this guy, you know, raised the church, really not a believer. And it was through patients that started telling him about their near death. Yeah. And, you know, nobody that goes through this comes out of ancient. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. There, It's a significant life. Interested, yeah. go online. And yeah. Rollins? Rollins. I believe it's Rollins. Very interesting, because that was when the whole trend got started yep. on coming forward. Because that's when Ross, Kuba Ross was doing a lot of her research in, uh, in the 70s. You say, but we don't think scientific stuff, but do it out in the end later. But then, basically, yep. nothing. 
Oh, very much so. Yeah, he had a very dim view. Yeah, he, he points that out in the first part of his book, the first, first part of the experience. He suddenly understood everything that anybody could ever understand. All of the knowledge, he didn't have to go to school. Yeah. It was just suddenly passed to him. And when he came back, it was in terms that he could not, was beyond our <coughs> conception. Um, but, Alan, there's one other point that bothered me about the book. One point that bothered me about the book. Um, at the end of it, he talks about... Um, as a result of this experience, he has got to go back to the medical and scientific community and convey his experience to them to point out the experience that he's had and their limitations have got to change their way of thinking. But he never talks in terms of his impact from a religious standpoint on his life. He doesn't say that I'm, I'm now a dedicated Christian. I attend church every day. He didn't. He never makes that sort of analogy. Yes, yes, I listen. I listened to an interview he did uh, yesterday, and um, he talks more about, you're right, he does not talk about Christ. I don't recall that ever being discussed. He talks about God the Father. You know, and he, he changes the name of God. Um, oh, um, which is a chant, a fairly common meditative chant okay, that people right, use. Well, I didn't, I didn't um, that's the old thing, but yeah, that's the, oh, just the word it kind of came to. Is he still practicing? He, I, yeah, he's still licensed, uh, but I think he's, he's on the, uh, the lecture circuit. I looked at his schedule. I mean, every... Virtually every day of the year, he's he's somewhere. He's, in fact, he's going to be in. I was looking to see if he was going to come to Atlanta, but he's going to be in Carolinas and Virginia, and all, he's all over the, uh, the country uh, in a couple uh, international. That's what he's doing now. Uh, what is saying about the heart, the functioning of the heart, and not It's not just the muscle. We we think there are there are neurological cells in here that the, actually the heart can convey feelings uh, to the brain. It conveys you know, there's certain pathways that goes to the brain, uh, and create feelings in us. Um, I think we probably all knew that. So we all had heartache. And, and when you and when dealing with the, the depressed patients that when they're profoundly depressed, their heart hurts. I mean their heart hurts and their chest hurts. Uh, so I've always thought that we don't have a clue yet what's going on with us physiologically. But yes. I thought I thought it really correct that he was so violent ill. This such a severe ill are never that don't expect to come back. There was no, it's right. They try to trace it back to Israel. Okay, Should be that, yeah. But it's almost a fear with God that God, Evan Allen, a neurologic specialist, to have the experience and cover fully. It was less than possible and then recover, bring a memory time to waste body, and also be able to medically rest about uh, religious and medic what's going on. And I don't know anything. Good point. Well, I need to, I need to, yeah, definitely. I just, if you can tell them to please read the book. It's yeah. a wonderful book. It's, it's and a, I felt he, he was a Christmas Easter Christian. Yes, he, that's what he said. Experience. Yeah, he was seeing it. Then he was, yeah. Yeah. he did yeah. he become talked a Christian. about the um, impact of prayer. Yes. Because he had people praying for him. And yes. he said that he experienced that prayer. Yes, he could feel the prayer. That was yeah, that was, that was, that was interesting. How about I close this with prayer? Yes. Heavenly Father, as always, you thank you for this day. We thank you for this group that means so much to our church, but not only to our church, to the community as well. Lord, we don't need proof of heaven. We know it's there. It's there in the Bible. It's in our hearts. It's in our souls. We thank you for bringing us your son to show us the way to that heaven. I ask that you bless all in this room. Bring them back next week that we may again fellowship together. In the name of our risen Lord. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Alan.
it's always a pleasure to have Alan. Uh, he is so entertaining and so knowledgeable, and it's a tremendous learning when he's here. So that was that was awesome, and I'll, we have to get the book. <laughs> so, uh, I just like to leave you with a thought for the day. No one will ever manufacture a lock without a key, and God will never give a problem without a solution. You all have a great week. Stay warm. Thank you.